Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Christchurch London Central Service. How are you doing today? Did you all enjoy your extra hour in bed? If you listen carefully, you can hear the sound of parents weeping. Uh, Was anyone, uh, in spite of having a whole extra hour to get to church, was anyone actually late to church today? Hands up, Jesus is watching. (laughs) Forgiveness, grace of God, we love you still. Um, Anyway, um, as you are aware, uh, we are working through the series of Abraham in the book of Genesis, looking at the subject of faith. It is week five today. And the title of today's talk is Faith and Patience. And in particular, I want to look at the whole subject of waiting, something that Abraham had to do for a very long time and something that none of us like to do. Everybody hates waiting. I mean, by way of an example, have you ever been on the phone to a company and they say to you those fateful words, I'm just going to put you on hold, are you okay to wait? And of course, nobody is okay to wait, but there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. You ever been driving along the motorway and a sign flashes up, long delays ahead? How many of us will do anything and everything we can to take a detour of many, many miles to avoid waiting and sitting in traffic? You ever been in church on a Sunday and the sermon just seems to go on and on and on and on? Yeah, I've heard Liam preach too. (laughs) And if you've never heard a sermon like that, just stick around. There'll be one coming your way in the not too distant future. Everybody hates waiting. And this is particularly prevalent in the city in which we live. I realized this the other week when I walked into a lift. Bear with me for this one. And I realized in any other city on earth, if you want to go down to the ground floor, you walk into the lift, you press G, the doors close, and down you go on your merry little way. Not here in London. If you want to go down to the ground floor in London, you walk into the lift and you press G. G, G, G. Closed door, closed door, closed door. G, G, closed door, closed door. It's not working. If you take the stairs. G, G, oh, it's finally working. Hands up if you can relate to that. If you have done that in your life, would you look around the room? This is a sick church. (laughs) Everybody hates waiting. And one of the reasons we hate waiting so much is it reminds us of our place in life. One of the rules of waiting is the less important person always waits for the more important person. When you go to the doctors, for example, there is a room set aside for you just so you can wait for the most important person in the building. And that room is called the the waiting room, a room just for waiting. And none of us know how long we have to wait for stuff apart from in some exceptional circumstances. When I was much, much, much younger, my parents took me to Disneyland. There they actually have signs that tell you how long you have to wait. Like from this point on, it's just three days till you get onto the Jungle Cruise. Wouldn't it be amazing if we had that in real life? Waiting really reminds us that we are not in control. Waiting reminds us of our limitations, of who is really in charge. And waiting affects us very, very deeply in here. You see, the things that we are waiting for affect us far more deeply than simply the bus, the train, a phone call, a friend. We're waiting for a sickness to heal. We're waiting for brokenness in our family to be remedied. We're waiting for something that we have longed for, maybe even prayed for, for many, many years and never seems like coming. Birth of a child, relationship, job, financial security. There's the child refugee wandering the Calais jungle, waiting for a sense of family again. 
There's the elderly person riddled with arthritic pain, waiting for the agony to be over. Waiting affects us very, very deeply in here. Lewis Meads, the author and theologian, put it like this. Waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. When you have to wait like that, and we are all in the waiting room of life, so to speak, you end up asking God a question, and it is all over the Bible, and it is this, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long, O oh Lord? You ever prayed that prayer? You know, rather frustratingly, it's a question that God hardly ever answers other than by asking us to wait some more. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, wait patiently for the Lord. Psalm 130, my whole being waits for the Lord. You know, interestingly, there is a world's leading expert on waiting. His name is Dr. Richard Larson, and he has some really interesting insights on this subject. A few years ago, executives at Houston Airport were trying to deal with the litany of complaints from people who were forced to wait at baggage claim for their luggage to arrive. They started by hiring a whole load of extra staff, and they got the waiting time down to an industry-beating eight minutes. Hugely impressive. Still, the complaints kept coming. And then they realized that the arrival gates were just one minute's walk away from baggage claim, leaving seven boring minutes to stare at an empty carousel. So in a stroke of genius, they moved the arrival gates to the other side of the airport. Now people had to walk much further, often over 10 minutes, but when they got to baggage claim, their luggage was often waiting for them. The number of complaints dropped significantly. You see, it turns out, that if we have something to do while we are waiting, waiting turns out to be not so hard. There's a wonderful little book on this subject by a guy called Ben Patterson. It's simply called Waiting. He actually comes to the same conclusion. What happens to us in the waiting room of life, what we do while we are waiting, what happens to us there is often more important than what we are waiting for. And so today, I want to look at the question, how do we live in the waiting room of life where we are all sitting? What do we do while we wait for the things that we long for but don't have right now? What do we learn from Abraham's life about waiting? And I'd like to read our passage for today. If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 16. If you've not got one, don't worry, the words will be on the screen. And we're going to read all of it from verse 1. It says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms. Now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that's beside the road to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. 
I will increase your descendants so much they'll be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will, he will be a wild donkey of a man. As a small aside, they did not have a booming greetings card industry in Abraham's day. <laughs> uh, my daughter is being dedicated in three weeks' time. If any of you send me a card saying she will be a wild donkey of a woman, we're going to put you on a few courses in church, just so you know. Anyway, back to verse 12. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That's why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Berit. So Hagar bought Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bought him Ishmael. As I'm sure most of you are aware, the context of this story is Abram is waiting. He's waiting for the offspring, the son of promise through whom God has said the whole earth will one day be blessed. But when he gets that promise, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4, we're told that he is 75 years old. Now chapter 16 and verse 3, he's been in Canaan 10 years. He's 85. By the end of the chapter, he is 86. And so, of course, with every passing year, the chance of having a son grows smaller and smaller and smaller. Abraham is not just waiting, he is waiting with ever-decreasing so what do we learn about waiting from this story? How do we live in the waiting room of life? I want to look at two very simple things. Firstly, waiting done wrong, followed by waiting done right. Simple. Firstly, waiting done wrong. A few years ago, I was driving not too far from here, actually top of Waterloo Bridge on the Old Witch, and I'm approaching a traffic light that turns from green to orange, and I am 20 meters away. And I think to myself, I don't want to have to wait at yet another red light in this city. Doesn't matter. If I speed up, I can get through before it turns to red. Only I didn't make it. And as the light turned red, I sped through. And 30 seconds later, I had a different kind of flashing red light in my rearview mirror. And I was pulled over by the grumpiest policeman on earth at the top of Waterloo Bridge. He said, do you know why we pulled you over? I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I've just come from church. Um, I'm a pastor. I work for God. <laughs> he said, well, you should have known better, shouldn't you? I said, I'm really sorry. I made a silly mistake. Would you mind showing me mercy like Jesus has shown you mercy? Well, I left out the last bit. And he said, no, gave me a £60 fine and three points on my license. He is, oh, you, I felt the pain, the pity there. Thank you. What a group of pastors we have in the room today. Now, here's the point of the illustration. One of the things we do because we hate waiting so much is we run red lights. We run red lights. That is Genesis 16. That is Abraham. I mean, it's obvious to us, but the writer makes it clear as well. When the writer says that Sarah took her servant Hagar and gave her to her husband Abraham to sleep with her, the very same phrase is used in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve takes the fruit of the tree that she's not really allowed to eat and gives it to her husband Adam to eat. And there is a word in the Hebrew here that's only used twice in the whole Bible here and Genesis 3. We are witnessing here a rerun of the fall. Only... Interestingly, curiously, that's not the way the culture saw it. You see, not having a baby back in Abraham's day was seen as a huge deal. And so they put a whole load of laws in place. It was called the Code of Hammurabi that made this kind of action totally legal. 
And so as we read this story with a sense of moral outrage, back in the day, there'd be no sense of scandal, no raised eyebrows, no gossip behind closed doors. This was normal. This was right. This was totally socially acceptable. Now, of course, we read this story through our 21st century eyes, and we think, you just don't do this. I mean, even take the slavery bit out of it. Is there anyone here that thinks it would be a good idea to sleep with your wife's PA, even if your wife suggested it? (laughs) Tip for all current and future husbands, the answer to that question is only and always no. You just don't do it. But at the time, totally fine. No problem at all. Code of Hammurabi, utterly acceptable. And it kind of got me thinking, is there anything in our culture today that our world says is totally fine, but in God's eyes is running a red light? Is there anything in our world today that is the equivalent of the Code of Hammurabi? Everyone says, yeah, it's cool to live that way, but a hundred, a thousand years from now, they will look back and say, wow, I can't believe they live like that. Where are we getting our values from? Why do we live the way that we do? because our friends say it's fine, because the media do? Or are we getting our values from somewhere better, somewhere greater, somewhere higher than our Western individualistic worldview? I want to show you a little video to illustrate this. The first person you see in this clip is the only person at the start of this film that's not in on the experiment. Conveniently enough, it's a video of a waiting room, and it shows where we actually get our values from, why we live the way we do. It's three minutes. I think it's quite fun. I hope you enjoy it. Why do you live the way you do? Why do you behave the way you do? Because everyone else says it's cool. Because the media say it's fine. If you live that way, you're in danger of running red lights. Where do you get your values from? Our world? Or somewhere greater? somewhere better, somewhere higher. Sure, this book needs interpretation, contextualization, careful analysis and study, because when taken out of context, it can do harm. But maybe we need to get our values from somewhere greater than the culture in which we live. First way we wait wrong in the waiting room of life is we run red lights. The way to mitigate against that is we get our values from somewhere greater than the world in which we live. How are we doing in that regard? First way we wait wrong is we run red lights. But there is a second way to wait wrong in the waiting room of life. And to really understand this, we need to look at this passage through the lens of a New Testament book called Galatians chapter 4, which talks about Hagar and Sarah. It says they are an allegory. Chapter 4, verse 24, Hagar represents the law, Sarah represents grace. This is not to be taken literally, it's a metaphor, but it is an important point nonetheless. Abraham is waiting for the son of promise, and there's no sign he's going to come soon. So he thinks to himself, if I take matters into my own hands, then God will give me what I want. Perhaps I can illustrate it through reading a short story from Tim Keller's excellent book, The Prodigal God. He writes this, Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew a huge carrot. So he took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the best carrot I've ever grown. I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you're clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman who overheard all this and he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you give the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king and was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses. This is the greatest horse I've ever bred. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. But the king discerned his heart, 
and said thank you, took the horse and merely dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. Here's the point. If the first way we wait wrong in the waiting room of life is by doing wrong, by running red lights, the second way we wait wrong is by doing right, what the Bible calls legalism. We think to ourselves, there's things that I long for, and for some reason, God is not giving those things to me. So if I do lots of church stuff, if I go along every week, if I get there especially early, if I give of my money, if I'm kind to those around me, then God will give me what I long for. So many Christians live their life like that, so burdened down by religious activity. It's not the way it works. As you have heard, we're looking at our What's Next campaign at the moment. More on that coming up a little later on. But we're asking everyone to pray, what's the next step for you in the area of your finances? The danger for all of us is this. We might think, if I give off my money generously, then God will give me what I want. And in reality, we become like the nobleman in that story. I'm not giving the king a horse. I'm secretly giving me a horse because I hope God, as I give, will give me everything that I want. God is not a penny in the slot machine. If I work hard enough, I'm good enough, or I give enough, then he'll answer my heart's longings. He is a loving father. Now, I am an imperfect dad, but I love my kids, whether they're good, whether they behave like their mum, or everything in between. I just love them. And you know what? Sometimes I choose not to give them what they want. You ever met a kid who got everything they wanted when they wanted it? How did that kid turn out? <laughs> like Liam did someone say, no, no. <laughs> you know, God's dealings with us are not so different. If there are things that we long for that God hasn't chosen to give us, he will give us those things when we need them, not necessarily when we want them. But if there's stuff that we long for, we don't have to do lots of religious activity to get it. He blesses us like a good father, whether we deserve it or not. It's amazing grace. First way we wait wrong in the waiting room of life is we run red lights, we do wrong. The second way we wait wrong is we do right legalism. Think it's all on our shoulders. It really isn't. It's all on him. So therefore, how do we wait right in the waiting room of life? I want to suggest two very simple things. And the first is this. We wait for a who, not a what. We wait for a who, not a what. I find the story of Hagar very, very moving. She has this kind of God encounter. Some scholars think that it's actually God she meets in this story. Verse 13 would certainly imply that when she says, you are the one who sees me. Other scholars think that this is just a representative of God. The word for angel in this story literally means messenger in the Hebrew. So as the bringer of a message today, the Bible would describe me as an angel. It's in the Bible, you don't want to mess with that. Either way, this is a divine encounter for Hagar, and it just changes everything. And it is really significant that this encounter happens at a well. I was doing some training with some leaders over the summer on this. I think it's worth repeating here. Sometimes in the ancient world, there were particular settings that everybody recognized. You can read about some of this in a wonderful little book called The Art of Biblical Narrative, given by a guy called Robert Alter. Perhaps a modern-day example would be if you saw a Wild West high street with tumbleweed blowing through it, everyone peering from behind closed doors, the clock about to strike 12, you would think, oh, some kind of high noon showdown is about to happen. The picture gives you a clue as to what is coming next. Well, in the ancient world, the well was one of those settings. The well was known as a boy-meets-girl story, a romance, 
A couple are going to get married and kind of live happily ever after. And the way the well story goes gives you a clue as to what is coming. So, as an example, Genesis 24, Isaac and Rebekah, their romance all kicks off at a well. Only in this well encounter, Isaac isn't even there. He sends his servant. It gives you a little tip-off that Isaac's going to end up being this passive guy, lacks proactivity. The well story gives you a clue as to what is coming later. Genesis 29, Jacob meets Rachel. Their romance all kicks off at a well. Only this well story emphasizes the amazing beauty of Rachel. And it gives you a clue as to what is coming, that Jacob's going to be blinded by love and the deceiver is going to end up being deceived. Exodus chapter 2, Moses meets his future wife Zipporah at a well. Only in this well story, Moses drives away Zipporah's oppressors so she can get to the well first. And it gives you a little tip-off to a greater act of liberation from oppressors that will be involved in Moses' lifetime. And so when Hagar has this God encounter at a well, everybody's antennas would have been up. Oh, wow, this is going to be a hugely significant relationship. Only... Only, 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 Hagar's the wrong kind of person for a relationship with God. Firstly, she's a woman. Now, in this patriarchal culture, it was not thought that God would ever be interested in addressing women. In fact, many scholars think that this is the only piece of ancient Near Eastern literature in the world that's ever been discovered where God addresses a woman by name. This was revolutionary literature at the time. What? In our patriarchal culture, God might want to have a relationship with women too? Mind-blowing. Staggering. Secondly, she's not only a woman, she's an Egyptian, chapter 16 and verse 1. Well, of course, at this point in the biblical story, it's all about Abraham and his offspring being the results of the earth being blessed. Egypt don't count. More than that, if Moses is indeed the author of this story, as many people think, oh, no one really knows. And of course, when Moses wrote it, Egypt were public enemy number one. They kept the Israelites in slavery for hundreds of years. What God's interested in Egyptians too? Can't get my head around that. Thirdly, she's not only a woman and not only an Egyptian, she is also a slave. You get a feeling for how despised and patronized slaves were in this culture by the fact that the only person who addresses Hagar by name in this story is God. Verse 2, Sarah says, go sleep with my slave. Verse 5, I put my slave in your hands, Abram. Verse 6, Abram, oh, your slave's in your hands. She's just a commodity. No one cares about her. And then she meets God. Hagar, I know you by name. And it just changes everything. It gives you a little clue to what's coming later on in the story when people will be able to connect with God, not because of who they are and what they do, but because of who he is. Anyone is welcome in his kingdom. And I find the question that the angel asks uh, very probing. He says, Hagar, where have you come from? Where are you going? It's quite a deep question when you think about it. Can you answer it for yourself? Where have you come from? Where are you going in life? Can you answer that question? We, the reader, we know the answer. She's running from mistreatment at the hand of Sarah. She's on the road to Shur. That means she's heading back to Egypt if you look at the map. This move makes sense. Her home country, freedom, comfort, pleasure, her family. This move makes logical sense. And yet God steps into this moment and he says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? It's almost as if he's asking, that stuff you're fleeing to, comfort, prosperity, freedom, will that really meet your soul's inner ache? Avoiding hardship, 
heading to where it's nice and comfortable. Will that meet your soul's inner longing? Oh, no, no, no. There is more for you, Hagar, than an easy life. Then he says something staggering. Go back to where it's hard. It's more for you than an easy life. Go back to where it's hard, and I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. And I love her response. Wow, you're the God who sees me. You know, every part of me, the good and the bad, no one thinks that God cares about slaves, but you see that and you still love me. That is amazing. It reminds me of another well story in the New Testament, the Gospel of John chapter 4, where Jesus meets a similarly vulnerable and broken woman. He gives her such grace and such acceptance. And the fruit of that encounter is she runs back to her village and says, come, meet the man who told me everything I ever did. It's not what Jesus did, of course, but it's how he made her feel. Oh, he knows everything about me and he loves me. Wow. In other words, in other words, part of the point of this story is all the stuff that we are waiting for in life. The stuff that we long for but don't have right now, it will not satisfy our souls as much as relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What is it you long for? What are your unfulfilled dreams? They will not meet your soul's inner ache like relationship with Jesus. In other words, we need our own well story. Have you had one? Have you met him? Do you know him? Allow me to talk about the What's Next campaign here because it kind of fits pretty nicely. As you have heard, we set out our 2020 vision. We're asking everybody to pray about what the next step for them is in the area of their finances as we work towards that. Here's why this matters so much. It's because our hearts are involved too. Because nothing affects what is going on in our hearts more than what we do with our money. Let me try and put it this way. If I put all my disposable income into the latest fashions, into buying new clothes, into trendy haircuts, looking really good, am I going to end up caring more or less about image and other people's opinion of me? Of course it's more. Where you put your money affects what happens to your heart. If I put all my disposable income into a property portfolio, into stocks and shares, into financial investments, am I going to end up caring more or less about where the stock market goes, property prices, the possible impact of Brexit? Of course, it's going to be more. Where you put your money affects what happens to your heart. Jesus put it like this. Where you put your treasure, that's where your heart's going to be. And I have discovered that when I hang on too long to earthly wealth, I end up in the waiting room of life waiting for the wrong thing. Stuff that does not really satisfy, gives me a kick of happiness, but then I need more rather than the one that I was created for. I shared this early last year. Some of you will remember this. No apologies for repetition. Early last year, I was speaking on this stage on the subject of finances and giving. In fact, if you go to whatsnext.christchurchlondon.org, you can see both this talk and others, as well as some of the testimonies you've heard from the front about what we think the Bible and Jesus taught about the whole area of money and giving. And before I wrote a word of that talk, I had this nagging thought in here. If I am to stand before you with any integrity at all, if I'm going to talk about money and finances and giving, I need to work out my own heart first. I need to review what I'm giving. So before I wrote a word of that talk, I went to my online banking in the office and I prayed, God, what should I give? And I felt this inner nudge that I should increase my monthly giving to the church in the spring last year by £40 a month. That might not seem like much, but it was more than enough for me to feel it in here. And I left the office that day, a battle raging in my heart. Half of me were like, why aren't Dave or Liam preaching on this subject? I bet they need to give more. 
The other half was like, no, no, Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. Live this out. Battle was intense. Well, I got on the train to go home, and I often work on the train, and unusually for that day, I walked into an empty train carriage, and there was a table covered with the newspapers of the day. So I picked them up, put them on a nearby seat. Underneath that pile of papers was a brand spanking new state-of-the-art mobile phone. Well, I thought, the Lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> now, before I had a chance to think how much would this get on eBay, the phone started ringing. I picked it up. A man's voice said, hello. I said, hello. He said, I think you've got my phone. I said, I think I do. He said, and I quote, this is a bit awkward, isn't it? I said, for £40, it doesn't need to be. No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> we, we had a little chat. He worked out where I was going. He said, oh, I've got a colleague who's working there right now. Could I give them a call? Could you meet them at a station and uh, hand over the phone? Would that be okay? I said, sure, that's fine. Well, a short while later, I got to the station. I found the guy. I gave him the phone. As I handed over the phone, he passed me back an envelope saying, this is a little thank you for your integrity and honesty. God bless you. And off he went. I took the envelope home. I opened it up. Inside was a gift voucher saying, thank you for my honesty. Guess how much the gift voucher was for? Well, it was only £25. It's not that great a story, to be honest. <laughs> I was like, I wanted a refund, not change. <laughs> I gave you cash. This is a voucher. No, I didn't. I didn't. You know, over the years, as I have given to the church, sometimes I get what feels like miraculous provision, sometimes not. Sometimes I lose some of my kingdom for more of his. Somewhere, sometimes somewhere in between. But you know what I have discovered? The more I invest in his kingdom, the more I discover the person that I was made for rather than the stuff that doesn't satisfy. As you pray about what the next step for you is in the area of giving, don't dwell on it too long. Our hearts are involved here, folks. It's more than the 2020 vision of the church at stake. It is our hearts. Where's your treasure? Where's your heart? In the waiting room of life, we need a well encounter. You can have another one today. We were made for a who, not a what. Where have you come from? Where are you going? What's your life all about? First way we wait right in the waiting room of life is we wait for a who. Second and final thing we do in the waiting room of life is we never lose hope. We never lose hope. There's a final detail that we can easily miss because it falls either side of two chapters. Last verse of chapter 16, we're told Abraham is 86 years old when Ishmael comes along. The very next verse, chapter 17 and verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. In other words, at the end of this chapter, he is still waiting. 13 years of nothing go by in a verse. But of course, we the reader are meant to notice this. For Abraham, this was agony. Is it today, Lord? No. Is it today, Lord? No. But of course, we, the reader, know the offspring's coming. It's all okay. Not just Isaac, but the offspring of all offspring, Jesus Christ. You see, it turns out that waiting is not so hard when you know what you are waiting for. A few years ago, there was a survey done where people were asked, how much would you be prepared to pay for a kiss from your favorite celebrity? Turned out people were happier to pay more for a kiss in three days' time than they were to receive a kiss immediately. Why? Well, if I was to receive a kiss from, say, Nicole Kidman or Jerry Halliwell, just pu pushing two random names out of the air, not giving this any thought whatsoever, <laughs> if I get a kiss immediately, I lose the joy of anticipation. 
If I wait too long, my favorite celebrities grow a bit old and flabby. It loses some of the fun. Turns out, three days is just about the right amount of time. Waiting is very, very different when you know what you are waiting for. Perhaps I can put it this way. Those of you who know me know that I am a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. I'm basically living my life like I'm a character in the movie. And my favourite part of the whole trilogy is the moment in the Two Towers, the Battle of Helm's Deep. If you've watched it, it's like the darkest, the most perilous part of the whole trilogy. The evil guys look set to triumph. The good guys look set to lose. Death and destruction looks a mere formality. And in the midst of this peril, Aragorn, the future king, says this to Gandalf, the white wizard. You are our captain and our banner. The dark lord has the Nazgul kings, but we have one mightier than they, the white rider. He has passed through the fire and the abyss, and they shall fear him. We shall follow where he leads. Yes! <laughs> now the point is this, the reason that I can handle the peril of Helm's Deep is because I know the white rider's coming. And to be honest with you, if Lord of the Rings didn't have darkness and goblins and orcs and Sauron and evil, I, if it was just a documentary on Hobbit life in the Shire, I probably wouldn't like it so much. But the peril of the moment makes the glory of victory so much greater. Oh, the white rider's coming. This is a brilliant moment. Waiting is different when you know what's coming. Well, that's the story of this book. We get to the end of chapter 16. Oh, no, Abraham's still waiting. But, oh, it's okay. The white rider's coming. The offspring's on the way. Not just Isaac, but the offspring of all offspring, the one through whom all history will change, Jesus Christ. And if you know his story, you will know there is a moment in his life when everything looks lost, when he hangs on a cross and gives up his life and darkness covers the earth and Friday and Saturday come and go and so seemingly with them does all hope. But then it turns out, three days turns out to be just the right amount of time. After winter comes spring, after night comes morning, after death, and then there was the third day, comes glorious resurrection. Jesus is alive. And after the glory of that moment, 40 days later, he says to his disciples, now go wait. Oh man, more waiting. But then the Holy Spirit comes. Anyone who's thirsty can drink of him. What a wonderful metaphor satisfies our innermost longings. And Ephesians 1:14 says that is a down payment on the end of the story when the white rider comes back and makes everything right. Credit to John Ortberg for this illustration. It's in one of his books. I don't know if any of you have ever seen Saving Private Ryan, the movie. The opening 30 minutes, many veterans say, is still probably one of the most realistic ever portrayals of the horrors of D-Day. 6th of June, 1944. Over 425,000 soldiers were killed or wounded in that epic battle. An unbelievable price was paid and paid in blood just so the Allies could secure a tiny sliver of sand on a Normandy beach. And truth be told, at the end of that day, it seemed like nothing much had changed. The vast majority of Europe was still under the power of the swastika. But the truth was, at the end of that day, everything had changed. It was like a tiny crack had been created. 
And the next day the crack grew wider, then the crack grew wider, then it grew wider still. Then came the moment when Paris was liberated. Then came the moment when all of France was liberated. Then came the moment when the concentration camps were overrun and prisoners were set free. Then came the moment when Hitler gave up his life in the bunker and judgment came to that particular beast as it always does, as it always will. Then came the moment when the war was over. Then came the glory of VE Day celebrations. But the truth is, the truth was, the glory of that victory was sealed at the end of D-Day. Sure there was more fighting, sure there were more battles, more suffering and more death, but VE Day was just a matter of time because D-Day happened. That's the story of this book. The cross and the empty tomb is the ultimate D-Day story. And the truth is, the truth was, at the end of Resurrection Sunday, the world looked very much the same. Hardly anyone knew Jesus is alive. But then came Monday, then came Tuesday, then came Wednesday, then came the ascension, then came the giving of the Spirit, then came the establishing of the early church, then the church broke the borders of Europe, and the day is going to come when the white rider comes back, and the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. D-Day has come, and so VE Day is just a matter of time. That's our great hope. And so in the waiting room of life, because we know D-Day's come, we wait confidently with never ceasing hope for VE Day to come. And if you've ever wondered, if it's ever crossed your mind, what is Jesus doing right now? The writer of a book of Hebrews, chapter 10 and verses 12 to 13 tells us, but when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since that time he waits for his enemies, that sin and death and guilt, to be made his footstool. The reason I love the Christian faith so much is as I long in here for this world to be a different place, God is not up there disinterested. He is waiting in the person of Jesus with us right now. Abraham, end of chapter 16, 13 years of seeming nothing. But we know the white rider's going to come. For us, in all our unfulfilled longings and dreams in here, D-Day's come. And so the day's going to come because Jesus is alive when the white rider returns and makes everything right. I can't wait. Maybe the band want to come up. Why don't we all stand to our feet? How do we wait wrong in the waiting room of life? We run red lights. We run red lights. How are you living right now? Where are you getting your values from? Time to get them from somewhere greater, higher than our Western individualistic culture. How do we wait wrong in the waiting room of life? We think it all relies on us. No, it really doesn't. He is a loving father. He loves you so much. So how do we wait right? We wait for a who? We weren't made for stuff. We were made for a relationship with God. We orient our lives around him and we never lose hope. D-Day's come. Jesus is alive. V-Day is just a matter of time. We're going to sing a closing song now. And after this song, as ever, there will be an opportunity for you to receive prayer. Maybe you would just like to receive prayer because there's stuff you long for that isn't happening right now and you just love to know Emmanuel, God with you in the midst of it. We'd love to pray for you. But Ephesians 1.14 says the Spirit is also a down payment on what is to come. You can get a kind of another down payment of that today. Maybe you're weary or tired or just want more of God in your life. Another down payment can be yours. We'd just love to pray for you too.
But first, let's just worship. Let's sing to Jesus. He's who we were made for. Then I'll come and close in a few moments. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.